Amen. I want to share a couple things with you, and I want to start in, in Psalms 139. It's a very familiar passage. You don't have to go there if you don't want to, but you're welcome to. In Psalms 139, he, you know the scripture. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way or hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting or in the everlasting way. If I was going to title what I have to share with you, it would be the neverlasting way or the everlasting way. I shared this with some of the young people at my house Tuesday. The neverlasting way or the everlasting way. And I think David is tying, David is combining this transparency, this openness to God's penetrating search to the possibility of an enduring way, of a lasting way. If we're going to extrapolate from that, we could almost say that it is when we don't make ourselves vulnerable to God's searching perspective, when we don't seek His viewpoint, then we embark on a way that never lasts. It may be a commitment that never lasts. It may be a victory that never lasts. But invariably, we will never last in our way. We will not go from faith to faith. We will not go from strength to strength. And we will not appear before God at Zion unless we are daily inviting, expecting, looking for the searching perspective of God's viewpoint that is different, higher, above our own. I don't disconnect the searching prayer to the everlasting result. Amen. And I believe that if you find yourself in a situation, small or great, where you feel frustrated at yourself for never lasting, God wants to put you on a path that is everlasting. And I believe the key to that path is to live under the searchlight of God's examination of God's perspective. In Luke, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Luke 16, 15. You are those who do justify yourselves. Is that someone who is living under the searchlight of heaven? Is that someone who is living with faith in God and doubt in self? No, I don't think so. Even the Apostle Paul 
in 1 Corinthians 4, 4 says, I am conscious, I am aware of nothing against myself, yet I am not acquitted by this, for the one who examines me is the Lord. Paul says, I don't know about any problem in my life, but my lack of awareness of my problems doesn't acquit me before God. For the Lord examines me. I am examined by the Lord. Many of you are familiar with this passage in Jeremiah where he says, actions may fail, people may slip up, but their hearts are pretty much good. Is that what your translation says? Some of you are looking at me cross-eyed, and well, you should. <laughs> he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Your heart is not ever going to qualify as the arbiter of what's right and wrong. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And he answers that with one entity. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. He ties heart and deeds together because from the abundance of the heart comes all sorts of wickedness or righteousness. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And we say, well, praise God, I'm saved. Now my heart is not desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Is that a legitimate claim? No. Yes, you may have the Holy Spirit. Yes, you may have an awakened consciousness of God and praise God for it. But Paul said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. There is nothing good living inside of me. And he spoke that in the present tense as an apostle. And the apostle Peter, who was of greater rank than Paul, given that he was an apostle of the Lamb, one of the, the 12 apostles of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, amen? Do you think that his heart was immune from deceiving him? Do you think he was immune from the deceptions of his heart? In Galatians, when he began to be hypocritical and behave one way in the presence of Paul and the Gentiles and another way in the presence of James and the Jews, was the apostle Peter deceived by his heart? So does that mean he didn't have the Holy Spirit? Does that mean that he wasn't saved? Well, if he had remained in that deception... Amen. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he will reap. That could have been a, a real snare that could have taken him down the wrong path, couldn't it have been? But that's not what happened. God sent the Apostle Paul to speak a word that turned the lights on for the Apostle Peter. And he saw he was a hypocrite. And he was able to turn from that error, the error of his own heart. The nature of deception is such that we don't know when we're deceived. If we know that we're deceived, we're not, de we're not deceived. 
It may be a bondage, but it's not a deception. But a deception is when you think it's right, when you think you're right and you're sure of it, and yet, unbeknownst to you, you're wrong. Thomas Hobbes in Leviathan said, Hell is truth seen too late. Hell is truth seen too late. It's a scary thought, isn't it? That hell would be that truth seen too late, which we could have seen under the searchlight of heaven, which we could have seen if we'd opened our heart to thy word, which is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway, which we could have seen if we had prayed and meant it, search me, O God, and know my heart and lead me in the way that is everlasting instead of neverlasting. In 1 John 1 and 8, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. I was just talking to you about deception and John introduces a big categorical deception common to all of us. And what is that? If we deny that we still have sin in our lives, in our hearts, we are actively deceiving ourselves. And the converse of that is what? But if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge who and what we are, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness and to cleanse us of our sins. And then he shows us how that cleansing is going to come. He says, if you walk in the light, thy word is a lamp and a light, right? If you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have koinonia, you have fellowship, interaction, partaking of the body with one another, and mysteriously the blood of Jesus is cleansing you from all sin. No, not mysteriously, not mysteriously. Just as surely as Peter was cleansed by the words of Paul, we are cleansed as we receive the word of God that would come to us through each other. Sometimes it's an unspoken word, is it not? Think about this passage in James, verse 21, therefore, of James 1, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. I want to ask you, is James speaking to unsaved people or is he speaking to a church? And he tells this well-saved church, Receive in the present tense the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And then he qualifies it as if to suggest that it might not save your souls if it doesn't get implanted, if it doesn't go all the way in. He says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who who deceive themselves. So John tells us if we think we don't have sin, we are, come on now, deceiving ourselves. 
And he says, prove yourselves doers and not hearers, for if you're just a hearer, you are deceiving yourself. So John's condition of sin is remedied by James' implanted word unless we don't take the word and do it. <laughs> we don't implant it into our lives. We just nod to it. We say, hmm, that was an anointed word. Praise God. And we carry on our way. We are deceiving ourselves. He says, be not deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, well, how am I righteous? Well, there's two ways that righteousness comes to a human, a New, Testament, a new Covenant Christian. One is by imputation, where he credits to you what is lacking. And the other is by impartation, the implanted word, where he puts a little bit of himself in you. Both have always got to be working in a believer's life. Imputation covers us as we walk down the path of impartation as we're being changed from faith to faith and glory to glory, being transformed into the same image of God. We're never going to be perfect. We're never going to be there. We all stumble in many ways, James says, two chapters later than this. But we have this assumption that in our stumbling there will be a light. In our stumbling there will be a truth. And if we can become doers of that truth, then we can be set free from that unrighteousness to be more like Jesus. Now, I've given you a dilemma in the past, which I want to give to you one more time to illustrate this point. Listen to these scriptures carefully. John 8, 31. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And they said unto him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone, which in itself was baloney. And he said to them, Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Okay, that's one scripture. Now here's another. John, we just read it, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. There's Scripture number 2. And then we have 3, Romans 6, 16. Whomever you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of Sin leading to or resulting in or of obedience leading to or resulting in righteousness. righteousness. Obedience in this sense is categorized as faith. What Paul in Romans 1 and Romans 16 calls the obedience of faith. So Jesus says if we commit sin, we're a slave. John says we definitely commit sin. And Paul says, whomever we're, the, whoever we're the slaves of is going to determine our eternal destiny, whether sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. So do you see the dilemma in that? Kind of feels like a stalemate, doesn't it? But what is the remedy? 
What is the remedy? It is the assumption of the ongoing Word of God that would set us free from that sin. Let's look at it like food. He who does not eat will die. Is this a true statement? Did you eat this morning? He didn't. Did you? Oh, he didn't either. I'm trying to find somebody who did. Good. So if you do nothing about that condition, you're going to die. Would you agree? If you don't answer that requirement in your life, you're going to die. But there is an assumption that you will go on answering that requirement, is there not? And people are the same way when they think about cleansing or they think about righteousness or they think about uh, sin. Yes, you're going to go on. It's just like taking a bath. Once bathed, always bathed. <laughs> We'd need clothespins on every noses if we believe that doctrine. <laughs> it's like you don't say just because I did it once, it's settled for all time. You say, yes, this is a need, and I have a source. I have a context where this need is met. And if you have a provision of food in your life, you don't say, I'm starving, even though apart from that food, you are starving. In the same way, the Christian is lost apart from the ongoing Word of God. That's why he puts in our seminal prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Not give us once in our life, but he recognizes Jesus uses the term day twice, twice in describing bread, which refers to the manna of his word. Because it's got to be today. If you don't starve in one day, you're going to become weak. And if you become weak, you're going to fall prey to the bigger snares of the devil. Amen. You're going to become malnourished. You're going to be a warrior that the devil is not afraid of. So John says, don't deceive yourself by thinking you don't have problems. And James says, receive the implanted word which is able to save you from those problems, but don't deceive yourself by just being a hearer instead of a doer. You've got to hear in order to do. You've got to understand in order to change, to be transformed. So that's why Jesus couches the whole thing by saying, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The, the tense there in the Greek is not you shall know one time the truth. It's you will be knowing the truth and the truth will be setting you free. If you go into a wasteland where there is no food, then you're walking into your death because the, the default condition of your system is starvation apart from the constant provision of food. And if you go into a setting where there is no word, you are intentionally starving yourself spiritually because the default condition of your spiritual man is starving apart from the provision, the ongoing provision of God's manna from heaven. James goes on and he says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror 
For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Now I want to ask you, how does a mirror implant the word and make you a doer? Is there anybody here who has ever been precipitated to act by a mirror? What does a mirror do to you? It shows you what you can't see. It adjusts your mental picture and confronts you with reality. Because you think you know what you look like. Right? You've got a mental picture of yourself, and that picture is generally close. But when you go to the mirror, you go, oh, turn the light off. <laughs> so when James talks about the man being changed, being saved by the mirror, what is he suggesting to us? What does the mirror do to put a word inside of us that would save us? To use his word, save us. Does it flatter us? He's telling these Christians, you just need to look in the mirror more often, you'll realize how beautiful you are. Is that what he's saying? I think not. What is he saying? What is he saying? For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. The mirror tells you what kind of person you are as opposed to the mental picture that comes from your heart that is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. The mirror is an answer to prayer, your prayer that said, search me, O God, and show me so that I can walk in a way that is everlasting instead of neverlasting. Once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he is. And then he counters that with the person who's going to be saved. And he says, but the one who looks intently, and what does he call it here? At the perfect In what sense is it a perfect law of liberty? It's a law, meaning it's not flexible. You can't argue with the mirror and get it to slim you up a little. You can't argue with the mirror and get it to take your gray hairs and make them some other color. It's a law. It's inflexible, as mirrors are, but it's a law of liberty because Jesus said, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You need to know the truth about what kind of person you are in order to be set free. Now, that is counterintuitive to what churches and Christians teach people today. We are taught self-esteem. We are taught so-called self-value. But the Bible seems much more intent on alerting us to the, the desperately, desperate wickedness of our hearts and to the flawed nature inside of us than it does, than it seems concerned about flattering us in the mirror. For once he looked at himself and gone away, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides in it. 
not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and he goes on, this man will be blessed. God, I need to see what kind of person I am. And I need to abide in that revelation. Can you think of any scriptures that encourage us to abide in, to remember, to not forget what kind of person we are? You see, the world would teach us that if you tell someone what kind of person they really are, that's bondage. That's condemnation. No, no, no. No, that's not. That's a perfect law of liberty. That's to get them to stop investing in the yuck flesh in which nothing good dwells and get them instead to start leaning on the Lord in all their ways, trusting in the Lord in all their ways and leaning on Him. Thank you, Jesus. Can you think of any scriptures that warn us not to forget what kind of person we are? What manner of man we are? Hmm? What did Peter say? Do not forget what manner of man we are. And he said that results in holy conduct. It's not a, it's not a problem to see who I am apart from God. It's not a problem to see what kind of person I am. It's a problem to forget. The person who forgets does not look at their brothers as mirrors. But does the Bible suggest that your brothers are mirrors? What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians? Is it, is it chapter 3? We all, beholding as in a mirror, the unveiled faces of our brothers and sisters are being what? If you can't see what your mirror reflects, you're, going, you're not going to be transformed. And there are two reasons why you may not be transformed. One is a veil may lie over the face of your brothers and sisters. They may not speak boldly. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face, but we use great boldness of speech. There's the mirror saying, saying it how it really is. Amen? Now, if somebody puts a veil over their words and they don't tell you the truth, you can't be transformed. Or if you put a veil over your heart... Remember that thing that is desperately wicked and you say, I'm going to know my own heart. I'm going to discern my own way. You put a veil over your heart, you're shielding your heart from the bright reflection of the mirrored faces around you. And you're going to set up a scenario where everybody's wrong but you. Everybody misses it. Everybody misses, understands. And you're going to go from disappointment to disappointment to disappointment. There has to be a conviction inside of you about what kind of person you are. And that conviction is repentance. But that repentance is something we have to get back to all the time. If I have the wrong perspective about what kind of person I am and the Lord disciplines me, he corrects me, how am I going to take that? I'm going to say the Lord disciplines those he hates and scourges every son he rejects, right? I'm going to feel offended. Why are you projecting that image to me, brother? Why are you acting like I'm that kind of person? 
That's a flawed perspective. You're giving me the wrong impression. And the Lord says, no, this is the perfect law of liberty. It doesn't mean your, per your brother's perfect. It doesn't mean the mirror is perfect. Paul said, now we see in a glass darkly. That mirror is not perfect, but it's good enough to set, a, set the course of transformation in motion in your life. If you will look intently at it, just keep peering at it. God, show this to me. Show this to me, Lord. Reveal it to me, God. I want to see more. Not because I want to wallow, but because I want to divorce myself from this. I want to deny this and take up my cross and follow Jesus. I want to stop being the slave of sin and become instead the slave of righteousness. And what is this slave of sin? How did Paul speak of the slave of sin? He used the exact same language to describe how he handled his carnal nature. He said, I die daily. And he said he made his carnal nature, he buffeted his flesh daily and made it his slave. You're either going to be the slave of what kind of person you are in your flesh, or you're going to make that person the slave of the new man that God is making out of you. Hallelujah. What kind of rights does a slave have? What kind of words, what kind of input does a slave have on decisions? You see, there's, a, there's, a, there's the wrong kind of perspective. There's that carnal mind that is, justifies itself. And in Psalms 36, he says, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. Transgression, sin talks to the ungodly in their hearts. Has sin ever talked to you through your heart? It has me. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes. Did you hear that? What does sin do when it talks to you in your own heart? It flatters you. It does the opposite as the mirror. It does a modified portrait of what you wish you were and hangs that above the bathroom sink instead of that mirror that tells you who you really are. It flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. It flatters you when you find things in yourself, when you discover your iniquity, you don't hate it. It flatters you about it. It spins it in a way that makes it seem completely different than how it really is. And hell is truth seen too late. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. His plan, he plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. But what is the evil that he should despise? The discovery of evil in his own heart. David was not a perfect man. But his imperfections revealed to him how his path could become everlasting. And so in verse 1 in chapter 139 he had learned to pray, "Search me, O God, and lead me in the way that is everlasting instead of neverlasting." 
Don't let me walk down the path illuminated by the dim glow of my own self-deception. Help me to walk in the pure light of what you would reveal to me in the mirrored faces of my brothers and sisters as I pray this prayer for searching, as I read the scripture, in my communion in the spirit, remind me, oh God, and when that visage appears before my eyes, that visage I hate of what kind of person I am, don't let me dart my eyes sideways at it for a half a millisecond and then move on to better things. Help me to peer intently. Show me what this is because the better part of liberation is revelation. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Don't be afraid to see what others see. Don't be afraid to see what God sees. Paul said if we would judge ourselves now, we would not be judged. It is to the extent that we postpone self-examination that we have a dreaded expectation in eternity. But if we would look at it now, oh God, show me. If we would judge ourselves now, if, if we don't, we're hopeless. What did Paul say? Examine yourself and test yourself to see if you are in the faith. And if you fail that test, you don't have to curl up in the fetal position and start whining or pop a pacifier of make-belief into your mouth. You can say, Lord, you told me that the mirror sets in motion transformation. This is a perfect law of liberty, not a law of condemnation. Mm -mm, no, because we're all equally hopeless apart from God. Amen. We're all slaves apart from the ongoing of provision of his word. Amen. Praise you, Jesus. Let all those whose hearts convict them pray, search me, O God. Help me to see what you want me to see about myself. Not to be condemned, but to be aware and to be wary and to be delivered from this thing, this body of death in me. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Do you want to live the path? Do you want to walk the path of big starts that never finish? Do you want to walk the path that's never lasting? Is that what you desire? Amen. If that's what you desire, then keep on deceiving yourself in your own heart. Let your heart speak to you. Let it talk to you. Let it confuse you. Let it pervert the truth or say, God, I'm sick of this and I know there's only one thing causing it. I deceive myself about who I really am. Amen. And you can hide from it. You can hide. You can duck from it. Amen. You can avoid it. I used to have a dog who, little skinny dog, a whippet, and uh, if he had been bad, and dogs don't have guilt, but if he had been bad, he would go hide behind the table leg, the dining room table leg. The table leg was only about an inch and a half wide, but it was enough that he thought his whole body was hidden because he couldn't see me. <laughs> and it was kind of comical because here you've got this dog with this little table leg in front of him. And that's how we are with God. 
we think we're avoiding it. We're just postponing it. We're just delaying it. But it's, it's, it's going to be there until the day we die, either in dying to our flesh in repentance or dying ultimately. I don't want to find hell as a place where truth is seen too late. I want to see it now. <laughs> I want to see what God wants to show me, and I want to change. Have you ever walked and looked at a mirror and said, that can't be right? That can't be right. Maybe this is one of those kind that swells you up, so you turn your head. Oh, surely, oh, no, it's not. Bummer. Amen. <laughs> Come on now. I mean, and that's what we do with each other. That's what we do with the perfect law of liberty. That can't be right. Amen. Well, if you're listening to the counsel of your own heart, you're right. That's what you're going to believe. Let's not listen to that. You know that the biggest changes in your life were when you said, maybe they are right. Maybe they are right. Maybe there is something in me that needs to change. Amen. And brothers and sisters, I'm not talking about a once-off repentance. Amen. Because James wasn't talking to the unconverted. I'm talking to us, all of us. I want to be transformed. I want to go from faith to faith as the righteousness of God is being revealed. Some hallmarks that would signify to you that you might be a forgetful hearer is if you are allergic to mirrors. Amen? So it's like, cover all the mirrors. If I'm going to go to this event, just make sure no, so-and-so's not there. If I'm going to go have a, if I'm going to go work over here, make sure so-and-so's not there. Right? If I'm going to go to a meeting, make sure I'm not sitting by so-and-so or in eyesight of, so, eyesight of so-and-so. Just all these efforts. They that are of the light, come into the light that it may be clearly seen. They want to see. But no, 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 I love my darkness because I call my darkness light. So I'm avoiding mirrors wherever I go. I'm avoiding that, that revelation, that examination that could transform me because I don't want to be transformed. I want to be accepted for who I am. But who you are can't make it to heaven. That's why it's called the path of the righteous and not the one moment in time of the righteous. Paul said, I have not already attained, nor have I already received it. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, I press on. Thank you, Jesus. Don't try to get God to accept you in the condition you're in when he has the miracle of transformation still waiting for you. Ask yourself why so many marriages end in divorce. Ask yourself why so many covenants break in this day. Because... Human beings are incompatible with each other. All human beings are selfish, and selfishness is mutually exclusive. Can you see that? So if you take away the order of the family and you take away the binding nature of the covenant and you put two in incompatible parts together and they discover their incompatibility what choice do they have except to part ways? What is missing from that equation? Transformation is. Because yes, that husband and that wife are incompatible. All of them are. But they can be changed. They can be transformed. 
they can go from strength to strength. Transformed into the image of God's Son, Paul said. They can say, I'm not the same person I was. Amen. Because I'm being changed and love is having its way and selfishness is losing every battle. So what people are convinced of today is that they can't change. So they spend so much time on finding the compatible other. They spend so much time on dating because we got to make sure this is her. We got to make sure this is the one. We got to make sure we're perfectly compatible. And they're chasing an illusion. There's no unity apart from Christ. There's no oneness. There's no lasting love apart from Christ. And I feel sorry for these people. So they started an engagement or a relationship, and they're together for a year, two years. We have family members like this, and then they part ways. And they say, we just discovered we weren't compatible. What they mean is we just discovered we can't change. But if the covenant is unbreakable, then to discover incompatibilities is to start the process of transformation. To look in the mirror and say, ugh, is to say, okay, but God, you will not leave us as orphans. You will come to us again and again and again. We will be different from faith to faith and glory to glory. We're being transformed into the same image by the Spirit. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. We're still knowing the truth. And you know what? The truth is still setting us free. Hallelujah. And it's not just the wife that does the changing. It's the husband and the wife. But there is an order to that relationship. The husband is submitting to those in his life. The wife is submitting to the husband. There's an order to the relationship, isn't there? But transformation is possible for everybody. So that these, these misfits who were like the like the fingers who couldn't hold water, they will grow together tighter and tighter until they can contain the content of God's love.